Luke 9, 28-36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in these days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning one more time, family of God. In life, sometimes each of us has experiences that permanently shift our perspective on things. You might start to think you might through, start your, to own think through life, your own what some life, of those experiences, some of those experiences were. were. They could be big things or small things. They could be very beautiful experiences, or they could be very painful experiences. I want to mention... Two relatively mundane things that have happened in my life, in my life. relatively small, relatively, small, small, mundane, relatively but mundane, fact, but they did in fact shift my perspective. You might be able to relate to one of them. The first one of these is the first time I flew in an airplane. Now, it happens that I have talked to several of you very recently about how much you hate flying in airplanes or how you will never fly in an airplane. So you may not be able to relate to this one. But some of you like me enjoy it. And I remember the first time I flew in an airplane, I was in high school. And I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is a large metropolitan area, a lot of people there. And we would drive out of there, you know, to go to different parts of the country occasionally. But it was always coming back to DFW. And really, Dallas-Fort Worth, that metroplex, was kind of like my world. And then it was not even a very long flight, but we were flying from the DFW airport to Florida for a basketball tournament. But I remember that first takeoff, and all of a sudden, all those big buildings started looking kind of small. And then you could see the whole Metroplex. And then it shrunk away and it was small and it was surrounded by grass and dirt and trees. And then there was all these other little cities. I didn't know what they were, but they looked small too. And you would pass over all these housing developments and thousands of houses out there with all those people living their lives. And it just changed my perspective. The world was a lot bigger than I thought. And as the airplane continued to lift, I remember passing through the cloud. Uh, the, the clouds for the first time. Anybody else remember this? Anybody relating to what I'm saying right now? Okay. Several people nodding. For the very first time. Some of you have flown so many times you may have forgotten what it was like. But for me, flying through the clouds that first moment was kind of like magical. And uh, I remember flying into the middle of the clouds and just having the thought. You know, as I used to, as a kid, love to look up at the clouds and think they were so beautiful. And I always felt in awe of God's creation. Look at his artwork. All these beautiful clouds. But I had the thought as I flew into the middle, God can always see them from this angle, too. 
And then we went up a little further, and now I'm looking down on the clouds, and you could see the sun reflecting from that side, and I thought, God can always see them. He always sees them from this angle, too. And my perspective was just enlarged. It's not necessarily that the way I was seeing the world before then was wrong. It was just too small. It was too narrow. I'm going to tell you another one, which is very different. Um, this is about junior high school. It could be a challenging time. Amen, church? And... Uh, I don't know what it was like at your school. I went to a relatively small junior high, and we did not have assigned seating at lunch. And so it was like a big decision what lunch table to sit at. Anybody want to testify to this one? I feel like a few people are going to be able to relate. And because it wasn't that big, in my grade, there was only a few options, and they would be, you know, based on social groupings, maybe the really smart academic kids or the athletic kids or just the vaguely really cool kids that we all wanted to be like or whatever it was. Also, some of them were gender integrated and some of them were gender segregated. And it didn't, nobody planned this, it just happened. But I remember grabbing my lunch and walking into there and my perspective, what I felt like was whatever I choose determines who I am. It felt very important for my identity. Um, And I didn't understand this at the time. Since then, I've read various books and articles by developmental psychologists and People talking about how your brain at that point really highly values peer feedback, peer input. What people say about us, whether they affirm us or criticize us, goes deep, right? And so it just felt huge. Whichever one of these tables I sit at, it felt like it was going to be my identity. There's like five options. What are you going to be? And in my mind, it was kind of like, and that's going to determine who I'm with for high school. And that will determine what I do when I get out. And that will determine the rest of my life, like my destiny, my future's. Which of these tables do we sit at? I remember one day I was like, I'm going to break out of this system. And I just went to a different table and just went and sat over there to see what happened. It was a terrifying experiment. But here's what happened with this with this perspective. I didn't there's no like one moment like flying up in the airplane, but just some time passed. I got out of junior high. Eventually, I got out of high school and I looked back and you know what I realized? Which table you sat at for that lunch period mattered not at all. Just didn't really matter. At this case, my perspective was really wrong. The situation I was in was shaping it. But looking back, it didn't really matter. I've lost touch with most of those kids, but there's a few that, you know, through Facebook or whatever, I'm still connected at. And what they're doing right now has nothing to do with what table they sat at in those junior high lunches. But it just took time to gain some perspective. If you're wondering why I stood up here and started talking about airplanes and junior high school tables... Because I want you to think about this story that we just read from Luke chapter 9 as we're studying the gospel of Luke. Here's a moment, we call it the transfiguration, in which Jesus takes Peter, John, and James, the inner circle of his disciples, up on a mountain to show them something that will totally change their perspective of reality for the rest of their lives. Late in life, Peter and John are going to be writing to the church of Jesus Christ, knowing that they will die soon. And they're still going to be thinking about this moment and talking about it. James would die for Jesus too young before he had a chance to write it down. But late in life, Peter and John are still going to be unpacking this experience. They would never see Jesus the same after this. They would never see themselves the same after this. They would never pray the same after this. 
They would definitely never read the Bible the same after this. They just met a few of their Bible heroes and were kind of embarrassing in what they did, actually. Everything was going to be different from this moment. And I was struck reading it this week by verse 32. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They were heavy with sleep. Literally, physically, they were tired. They were asleep. This is going to become a, a recurring theme in the Gospels. Really important spiritual stuff is happening. Jesus is praying and is inviting his disciples to pray with them. And they're asleep. Right? It's a physical reality. Aren't you glad Jesus is compassionate when we're exhausted? Whew, I'm tired after all the outreach we've been doing all summer long. Ready? Ready to rest for a little bit. Jesus is compassionate. With our physical exhaustion. But there's also, I think, a little bit of a metaphor here. Sometimes we get spiritually sleepy, don't we? And we need the Holy Spirit to do something to jolt us awake to see his glory. And it's been my prayer that this week, as we meditate on these verses, they will hit for us in a fresh way. That can be a perspective-altering moment for us for the rest of our lives. Not because I'm about to do anything fancy up here, but God, the Holy Spirit, can take his word and change the rest of your life. Can't he, church? Oh, that was a little weak. Can he change your life, church? Who would like God to shift your perspective this morning? Let's take a second and pray then. Let's bow our heads. And I want to invite you just to pray a bold prayer for yourself and for everybody in the room. That as we take a few moments to walk through this story, the Holy Spirit is going to do something in our hearts and minds that will shift the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about Jesus, and our perspective on reality. After a few moments of silence, I'm going to pray for you. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see Jesus this morning. I, I need your help. Lord, help me to speak your word clearly and accurately and with anointing power from your spirit. And would you give us all understanding, attentive minds, trusting hearts. Help us to remember what we hear today and be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that we would leave this place trusting and treasuring Jesus more than ever before and seeing our day-to-day lives differently because of this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look with me at verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, you might underline those three words, after these sayings. If you weren't here last week, you can... Glance up in your Bible to a few verses before. If you were here, you can just remember the great sermon Jared preached for us last week. And here's what happened last week. The question that has been running throughout Luke's gospel is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And finally, we came to a tipping point last week. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they rattled off a bunch of theories. There's still a lot of theories in the world today about who Jesus is, aren't there, church? And then he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You're the Savior. You're the King. 
Jesus tells him this is correct, and then Jesus begins to talk to them about the cross. He says, I'm about to be rejected by the leaders of the people. I'm about to die in Jerusalem, and then I'm going to rise again. And if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily. Last week, Jared helped us think about that word daily. Everybody say daily. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. And if you do that, if you lose your life for me, you will find your true self. You'll find true life. And then he told them, some of you are going to see my kingdom before you die. And now Luke says about a week after that, he takes with him Peter, John and James. Still this business about the death and resurrection of Jesus, about taking up their cross and following Jesus is in their minds. And he takes them up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, wait, we got to pause. Everybody say pray. He went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, a bunch of stuff happened. Have you noticed that Luke keeps telling us over and over how much Jesus prayed? Jesus prayed all the time. And throughout this gospel, every time there's about to be a big movement, a big change. The Holy Spirit's about to move. God's kingdom is about to come. We find Jesus praying. And I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot right now because we've been talking about it throughout the last few months as we study Luke's gospel. But I just want to say this. Jesus is the God man, which means he reveals to us some important truths about who God is. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. But also he's the ultimate revelation of what it means to be human. And what we see in the praying life of Jesus tells us something about God and something about ourselves. What it tells us about God is that he's the Trinity. Everybody say Trinity. He's a communicating God. He's a relational God. The son is talking to the father and often we'll find the Holy Spirit mentioned in these passages. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who loves us, is a relational communicating God who's inviting us into his relationship as the three in one God. And that leads to what it teaches us about ourselves. Authentic, th thriving, flourishing human existence is a praying life. God is inviting us to be a people of prayer that are entering into the life of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, communicating with him. OK, that's the end of my little side note there. But Jesus was praying and all of a sudden all sorts of amazing stuff starts to happen. It says in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. Now, if we were out at one of the apartments and I was teaching a kid Bible study right now, I would tell you to put your imagination caps on. And, and then I would tell you to turn it on to full. Good job. Good job, Ella. You got it. Turn it on to full blown imagination mode. I want you to picture this in your mind. Imagine that you're feeling sleepy at church. I know that's very difficult to imagine. But just imagine you're feeling sleepy at church. And then all of a sudden you look over at Jesus and his appearance is changed. Luke understates this. His, uh, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. If you want to hear it described a little more dramatically, you could go over to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 17 says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. So. They're just looking at him and he looks like a regular human being. And then all of a sudden they're sleepy. But they look and his face is so bright you can't look directly at it. Think that might wake you up, church? His clothes are so bright it looks like they're shining. 
you go read the other gospel accounts, everybody's trying to figure out how to describe what they saw. But he's shining. The theological word for what's happening right now, which Luke will use in a minute, is the word glory. Everybody say glory. God is always great. He's always holy. He's always majestic. But often his majesty is veiled. It's hidden from us. And the majesty of Jesus, though he's been doing all sorts of miracles, is very much veiled. It's very much hidden throughout this earthly life that he's been living. But for a moment, the veil is lifted and glory is shining out. They're seeing something about who he has been this whole time. And he's shining like the sun. Glory is about God's greatness, which is always there, shining out in a way that you can see it, you can perceive it. And when when the Bible talks about God's glory being manifested in this way, it always calls for a response from his people. Sometimes they fall down and worship him. Sometimes they're terrified because of their sins, but they never say the same. If they're sleepy, they wake up. He starts shining and he gets better. Verse 30 says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. There it is. Everybody say glory. That probably in this context means they're shining also. Their shining is different than his shining, though. Their shining is a reflected glory. The shining of Jesus is coming from within. It's intrinsic. It's natural to him. They're radiant with a reflected glory. Now, I just want you to think about how wild this experience would be from the disciples. You still got your imagination cap tuned on? When we read this today, we might not compute just how weird it is that Peter, James, John, Elijah, and Moses are all standing on the same mountain. Because for us, it's like they're all Bible characters. But check it. Moses lived 14 centuries before Peter, James, and John. That, that would be like if Paul and Peter showed up in our service, right? We've read about them. They lived over a thousand years ago. And now all of a sudden, they are here. And they're shining and they're talking to one another. Now, it's not just that they're from a long time ago, though. Moses and Elijah are central figures in the law and the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures and the history of God's dealing with his people. Y'all know who Moses is. Great prophet of the Lord, the great deliverer. God used him to bring the children of Israel out of slavery into the promised land, although he didn't quite get into the promised land. We'll talk about that in a second. But not only was he the deliverer whom God used to lead them out of slavery into freedom. He's also the lawgiver who spoke the word of the Lord. He's the one who met with God face to face so that even in his earthly life, his face would sometimes shine with reflected glory from the presence of Yahweh so that he had to wear a veil so the people didn't freak out. That's Moses. And in Deuteronomy, it was prophesied that. In a a future day, there would come another prophet like Moses, but he was going to be better than Moses. And and in Deuteronomy, it said, when that greater prophet comes, listen to him. Pay attention to him. Moses, you remember Elijah. Elijah lived much later. He lived in the time when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were on the throne in the northern tribes of Israel. And they had taken this people, which was supposed to be God's covenant people, and devoted them to Baal, to Baal, the Lord of the dead, who is the biggest rival to Yahweh throughout the Old Testament history. And they had prophets doing all sorts of perverse practices. And along comes the prophet Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is God. In other words, 
Baal is an imposter. He's a dark, evil Lord, and you need to worship the one true God. And his whole life is devoted to that. He's a man of great faith. He's a man of great courage. God works through him to do mighty miracles. And uh, during his life, occasionally there's these revivals where people who were worshiping Baal turn to the Lord God and worship him. And then at the end of his life, he's taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. These two guys are a big deal. They're a big deal. They're central to the narrative of the law and the prophets. And it says, not only do they appear and they're shining, but they're speaking of speaking to Jesus of his departure. You see that in verse 31 of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I want you to circle that word departure. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking. What are they talking about? The departure which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke has already tried to help us connect this story to Jesus saying, I'm about to die and rise again. And the language here is language that was frequently used by Jews in the time period to talk about death. This is referring to his death on the cross. But something that is difficult to see in English Almost impossible to see in the ESV that we're looking at is that the word here in this context is a much deeper significance because guess what the word is in Greek? Repeat after me. Say Exodus. All right. Pop Bible quiz. Some of the Bible scholars know the answer to this. If you want to read about Moses leading the people out of Egypt, where do you go in your Bible? Exodus. That's right. You go to Exodus. It means departure because or deliverance. Because they were slaves in Egypt and Moses was the instrument of God, the liberator who brought them out of their slavery into freedom. And now Moses and Elijah have showed up and we need to connect some dots right here. Everything in this story is evoking Old Testament passages, especially the passages from the Exodus, where the cloud of God's glory would descend to protect the people and to guide the people. And sometimes it would come on the tent of meeting so that his glory was just so thick that people couldn't even approach it. Everything is connecting us to this Exodus story. And what Peter and John are going to be thinking about for decades is this moment and how Jesus is teaching them to read the story of Moses and Elijah. Or to put it a different way, how Moses and Elijah were just placeholders, signposts pointing forward to a greater deliverer named Jesus. Because here's the thing. Moses could not lead the people into the promised land. He couldn't even enter it himself because of his sin. Moses was a great role model of faith, but he was a very imperfect deliverer. Elijah had a wonderful ministry, but Elijah himself was keenly aware that that ministry was mostly a failure. The people continued to be unfaithful, even in his lifetime. At one point, he he became so discouraged that he called out to God, just kill me because I'm the only one who really trusts you. Right after his greatest prophetic victory moment. Both of these guys had wonderful ministries from God. They were revered as great prophets, but they were also sinners dealing with a sinful people. And they lacked the power to really bring God's people out of their slavery. And what's happening here is that Jesus is showing Peter, James and John and Luke is showing us. We needed somebody way greater than Moses, somebody way greater than Elijah. Their stories were just about his story because the children of Israel were still in exile. They were still in slavery. 
Even if they were living in Jerusalem, because they were slaves to dark spiritual powers, because they were oppressed by the Romans, they got that part. But much deeper than that, they were slaves to sin. They were slaves to spiritual forces of evil, which is why every time Jesus walks into church, demons start talking. Did you notice that? He's in the synagogue when that happens. The people are enslaved. And what we're being told right here is they go up on the mountain. They're falling asleep. Jesus starts shining like a sun. Moses, who died 14 centuries ago, shows up. Elijah shows up. And what they're talking about is this. On his cross, Jesus is about to lead the people on a second exodus. What they're saying is this. We're still in captivity. We're still slaves to sin and death and spiritual forces of evil. We couldn't do it. We couldn't deliver the people. But Jesus, you can. And you will. They're talking about the cross. Verse 32. It's kind of funny. And so it was verse 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake... Isn't that kind of funny, y'all? God's people, sometimes we fall asleep. Sometimes we just get bored with God. And we get bored with God not because God is boring. It's possible to be bored for all sorts of different reasons. You can sleep through exciting things. Some of you experience this. Any parents take your kids to watch the 4th of July fireworks? And they were all excited about it when you got there, but then you had to wait for sundown, and it took a while to set up, and your kids fell asleep, and all of a sudden, bright lights, it's like gunshots, it's so loud, and the kids are just sleeping through the whole thing. And the next day, they're like, I thought we were going to see the fireworks, Mom. There can be very exciting things happen around you, and you sleep right through it. And this, this is the spiritual check for us right here. Are we awake? Are we awake in the presence of God? One of the things I pray for us is that we will come to see reality as it really is and as it's disclosed in Jesus so that we can wake up and see the glory of God. That's what the text is saying. They became fully awake and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. And as the men were parting, you might want to underline those words, not, not miss that. As the men were parting, Moses and Elijah are leaving. I don't know if they're like disappearing. I don't know if they're walking away somewhere. I don't know if they're floating up. I don't know what that was like. You can imagine it how you want to, but they're leaving. And then Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah And Luke adds, not knowing what he said, Peter was confused. Wouldn't you be in this moment? Just woke up from a nap and Moses and Elijah are standing there. And Jesus is shining and they're talking about Jesus dying, which you still haven't understood. But they're talking about it as if it's the one thing that could set the people free. And now they're about to go. Peter is confused, but it seems to be what he's saying is don't go. Don't go. This is a special moment. I want to sit and talk. Wouldn't you want to sit and talk to Moses and Elijah for a while? I want, I want to keep this moment. Let me build a tent so you can stay here. But Peter, while Peter's getting the words out, verse 34 says, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Everybody say a cloud. Now that cloud is not just any cloud. It's what I was referring to a moment ago. 
It's the cloud of the glory of God throughout the Exodus period. As they were approaching the Red Sea and those armies of Egypt were coming to take them back into slavery, the cloud went and guarded them from those armies of Egypt till by the power of the Lord, Moses part of the Red Sea and they came out on the other side. Then the cloud moved and, and sw- the, the armies of Pharaoh went into the water and were swallowed up. You remember that church? And then as they were wandering in the wilderness, didn't know where to go, they were guided and guarded by a pillar of fire at night, which was a shining cloud during the day. It would descend on the tabernacle later when everybody thought David and then Solomon might be the great king who would usher in the peace that we were waiting for throughout those dark periods like judges where everybody did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. Solomon built a temple. Solomon, the king of peace, builds a temple and the cloud of God's glory comes down on it. And there's a lot of hope. Now God's presence is going to be with his people in a permanent way that will give us peace. But was David and Solomon able to bring lasting peace, church? Their sin and their failure had ripple effects that led to more sin and more failure and more sin and more failure. And now here's Jesus. And all those stories were pointing forward to him. And the cloud of glory descends and overshadowed them. And Peter, James, and John are terrified. It says they were afraid. I would be too. They're trembling in awe of God as they enter the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud. This should make us think of the voice that spoke from heaven when Jesus was baptized. It's happening again. God is opening the veil and he's speaking because he really wants us to get who Jesus is. For the last many weeks, every time we've studied Luke's gospel, every single chapter has been about this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Everybody say, who is Jesus? It started after he parted the waters and the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? We heard Herod talking about who Jesus might be. We've heard the disciples reporting everybody's theories about who Jesus is. Then we heard the disciples say, who he might be. And now God the Father is giving us the answer to the question. Pay attention. I want you to imagine yourself there with those disciples on that mountain. The cloud has come down. You're surrounded by glory. And the voice, the heavenly voice, the voice of God the Father says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. First, he says, Jesus is the son of God. That's a phrase we've been hearing. We've been talking about there's a lot of layers to what this means. He enjoys an intimate relationship with the father. Unlike anybody else. He is a royal son. Like Adam, who Luke also called a son of God. Created by God, enjoyed intimate relationship with God. And he was supposed to be the steward, the vice regent that ruled the earth to fill the world with the glory of God's kingdom. But he sinned and he failed. Then David and Solomon and those kings of Israel who were called sons of God failed to be God's representatives, his royal sons on earth to establish his kingdom of peace. But here comes Jesus, the son, the king who's able to bring God's kingdom and glory to the earth. In Jesus, though, this gets us back to a deeper reality than that. Everybody, once more time, say the word Trinity. 
Because this is the absolutely unique Son of God who was with his Father before the creation of the world. Begotten before all ages. Eternally begotten of his Father. God of God, light of light. Being of one substance with the Father. And now he has become flesh and dwelt among us so that he's fully God and fully human. And the Father says, this is my Son. That's why he's shining like that. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And then he says, my chosen one. Everybody say chosen. This word chosen is a big Bible word. Chosen. Sometimes you hear the word elect. It means the same thing. Elect means chosen. Election means choosing. I remember in college in the dorms, we used to have a lot of arguments about election. Like we knew what we were talking about. Predestination and all kinds of stuff. But in, in the Bible, this is a very important word. And after humanity rebelled against God, Adam, the son of God, turned away from the Lord and the, the world was plunged into darkness and chaos and sin. God chose a people from himself, for himself, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. The people of Israel are the chosen people and they're chosen for a purpose to bring light to all nations. God wants to bless all peoples through the chosen people. But I hope you're recognizing a pattern. Did Israel succeed in their mission? Y'all can shout it out. Yes or no? No, they did not. Adam did not succeed. Even Moses and Elijah did not succeed. David did not ultimately succeed. Solomon, all the great heroes of the Old Testament could not deliver the salvation, the liberation that we really needed. And so... In the period of exile, the people began to hope in another chosen one that God spoke about. And the most important passage about this is from Isaiah. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Isaiah 42 real quick. I want you to look at this verse, this passage, before we finish here in a moment. Isaiah chapter 42. Check out verses 1 through 4. The prophet Isaiah had warned of exile because of sin, and now he's looking past exile towards restoration on the other side. And listen to what God says through the prophet. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. There's the word. Everybody say chosen. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This verse is what is being evoked at both the baptism, when the father calls Jesus the beloved son in whom he delights, and here, my son, my chosen one. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So what does it mean when the voice in the cloud says, this is my son, my chosen one? Here's what it means. Where Abraham fell, where Isaac fell, where Jacob fell, where all the people of Israel fell, where all the prophets succeeded... God has not given up and Jesus will be victorious. He is the chosen one. God has given him power to bring justice to all the peoples of the earth. Not just some nations, not just some ethnic groups, but every corner of the globe is going to be touched. 
God's justice and freedom and salvation are coming. But he's coming to bring this power, this justice and liberation, not like any other human liberator in history. Because it says, if you take a candle that's about to go out, he won't blow it out. If you take some desert grass that is bent, hanging over like this, blowing in the wind, he won't break it. Matthew quotes these same verses talking about Jesus. And what he's saying is, here is a king who will conquer the forces of evil with humility and gentleness. With compassion for the vulnerable. Once again, it's pointing to the cross. A world living in slavery to sin, to Satan, to death. Awaits a deliverer greater than those old prophets. It awaits God's chosen one, God's son. Going to the cross to take upon himself all of our evil and all of its consequences. To bear my sin and your sin. To die and rise again so that through Jesus Christ we can be set free. The voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. And a very simple implication is, listen to him. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, listen to Jesus. If he is the son, if he is the one and only chosen one upon whom the hope of the world hangs, listen to him. And I cannot imagine a more important word for the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America in the year 2023. Listen, church, there are a lot of voices competing for your attention. On TV, there's a lot of voices. On the radio, there's a lot of voices. At the bookstore, there's a lot of voices. God knows there's a lot of voices on YouTube. More than all the books in the whole world, there's voices on YouTube. Wikipedia makes makes Encyclopedia Britannica look look like this, right? So So many voices on the internet. Lots of voices on TikTok and Snapchat. I don't know about all that except the youth keep showing me. Lots of voices. Political voices. Psychologists, gurus, spiritual directors, preachers, pastors. There's a lot of voices telling us about how to sort things out. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed by all the noise and tune out. It's also very easy to follow one for a while and then get disillusioned and follow another for a while. And then that fad passes and then follow another for a while. And we're all just being led around, wandering. And church, I want you to turn your imagination cap all the way to full imagine and imagine you're standing in the cl- you just saw Moses and Elijah Jesus is shining like a sun you're trying to figure out what to do you said something stupid then a cloud overshadows you you're literally surrounded by the overwhelming presence of God's glory and a voice says Jesus is the only one listen to him listen to him and what it means is this church whatever other voices you listen to Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. If you need to tune out all the other voices, go ahead and do that. Probably be a good exercise for us. Maybe not for Lent. Maybe we should just like tune out the chatter all the time. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. I see a lot of people who were doing well spiritually five years ago who are doing great now. And a lot of people who are doing well spiritually who are totally off the rails and 
And listen, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other deliverer. If you're not with Jesus, your life's going to get ripped apart by the powers of darkness, even if it looks very successful and comfortable. Do you know what the, the one and only difference between those two people is? One of them listened to Jesus. It's the only difference. Listen to Jesus. I want to step back and think about the profound implications for the us before we sing another song of this story. I want this story to mark our imaginations in a way that shifts our perspective in life. Because here's the thing. It's really easy in life to start feeling like a lot of things that are just a little bit important. We start feeling like they're really important, right? Our lives can be very obsessed with money, with success, with our image. Even important things like some of our relationships. It can just come to have an inflated sense. Listen, I'm not in junior high anymore, but I can still start giving exaggerated importance to what people think about me. Anybody else struggle with that? Don't admit it. You don't have to. I already did it for all of us. We get worried about the culture. We get worried about all kinds of different things. We make lots of stuff really, really important. But if this wasn't a sermon, if we were actually up on a mountain and the light started shining and the cloud came down and the voice spoke, we would leave with a new set of priorities, wouldn't we, church? And, and the word of God says to us, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet they believe. And yet they believe. What matters is Jesus Christ and everything else in relation to him. The future of the world does not depend upon any crazy election that's coming up. I, I'm not a prophet, but I think I can say that the next election is going to be crazy. Don't you think so? And the outcome of that is not going to determine the future of the world. Doesn't depend on when the next pandemic is or what blows up in all the crazy geopolitical situation. It's, it's all about Jesus. It all hinges on him. It's all about Jesus, the deliverer. And what... What I want you to leave here recognizing is Jesus showed them his glory so they could tell us so that we could remember there's only one deliverer. There's only one liberator. And the ultimate Independence Day, the ultimate Liberation Day is Good Friday. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to be free from sin and Satan and death is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what this text is all about. And all the other liberations, I'm thankful for Pastor Jared leading us to pray for our nation. That was good. That was a good time. Praise God. Aren't you thankful for civil liberties? Aren't you glad for religious liberty and all those who have sacrificed for us to have it? Praise God for that. But what I'm trying to say is there's only one king who can bring us permanent and lasting and deep freedom. There's only one that can leave us out of slavery into the promised land. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the light here is showing us two things. One of the things it's showing us is who Jesus is as God. But the other thing that it's showing us is the first glimpse of who we are going to be as God's glorified humanity. Now, as we finish today, I just want you to think about this reality. Jesus wasn't the only shiny person in this story. Moses and Elijah were also radiant. And the New Testament is very clear that uh, the glory of Jesus here is not only revealing who he is as God, but who he is as the first fruits of the glorified humanity, which means we're going to be like that. 
And much more important than whatever physical shininess our resurrected bodies may or may not be capable of is that means our souls are going to be perfected. Aren't you looking forward to being done with struggling with sin, church? C.S. Lewis in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, talked about this reality. And he said, it might be possible to think too much about your own future glory, but it's probably not possible to think too much about your neighbor's future glory. So here's a little exercise as we get ready to finish today. Look around the room. I want you to assume for the moment, I know you don't know all the secrets of the heart of the person next to you, but let's assume they have trusted in Jesus Christ and they're going to be faithful to the end. Here's what I want you to think about. One day that person is going to be radiant. They're going to be shining like Jesus, Moses, Elijah on this mountain so that if you saw them right now, you'd probably instinctively fall on your knees. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? The glory that Jesus has prepared. And when he says, pick up your cross daily... When he says, die to your old false self, because I'm about to make a new true self, he's saying, we got to practice for glory. I want you to practice self-surrender, self-emptying today, humility, trust, love today. Because when I'm done with you, you wouldn't even recognize yourself. You're going to be so radiant. And when God's done with that neighbor you just look like in heaven, you'll think that that's the glimpse of you that we saw on those your best moments in life. But that's who you always really were. That's who he was preparing you to be. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. I want you to stand with me. We're about to sing one more song of worship. But I want to stand in the presence of God. And I want to invite you to put your hands in a posture of receiving. Close your eyes. Imagine yourself on that mountain. Imagine yourself in that cloud. Imagine yourself hearing that voice. And the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is... Working in your heart and the the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I just want to invite you to say to, to Jesus, speak. Your servant is listening. He may want to shift your perspective on some things today. There may be some things that are too big in your heart that need to be smaller. Some things that are too small that need to be bigger. Just ask God to speak. Tell him you're listening. That you want him to help you see reality as it is in Christ today. Our Father, again, I want to pray by your spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus. Speak and help us to hear the words of Jesus. And we want to praise you and thank you. And Lord, I just make it my confession that a lot of days I wake up in the morning spiritually in the same condition Peter, John and James were at the beginning of this story. I believe in you. I'm trying to follow you. But my mind and heart and imagination have grown sleepy to the reality of who you are. I just pray for us as a church, even now, as we sing and as we go from here this week. That we would be awake to see your glory. We'd set our hope on the glory to be revealed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We want to lay our sins at your feet and come to Christ, our only deliverer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.